Uh, then he wrote a book entitled Misquoting Truth. It was a, uh, a, a response, if you will, to Bert, uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, Misquoting Jesus, which was a, a disaster of a book, and he gives a, a great rebuttal to it, and it's a, it's a very fine book. So this is in the area of, of uh, theology or in the area of, of uh, I guess, uh, scriptural analysis and uh, talking about that. Uh, then he's got one, Conspiracies of the Cross, an intelligent uh, counter to the 10 most popular theories that attack the gospel of Jesus. An excellent book. I downloaded this to my uh, uh, Kindle and read it uh, while we were at Southern up on that uh, particular uh, uh, conference that we went to and started reading it there. And then maybe one of my favorites he's written, which totally sounds completely out of your field, Timothy, just to look at it, but it's Christian History Made Easy. And, and I want to tell you, if you don't understand Christian history or you kind of don't have a grasp of it, I encourage you to get a copy of this. We, we can make them available through our book nook, but it really is just a good guide to an overview of, of church history and Christian history, and it really is made easy. And, and for some of you, I can look around and call names, there are pictures, okay, so, and color pictures of that. And so it really makes it, uh, makes it very enjoyable to look at in the study. But Timothy, it is a joy to have you with us uh, this evening. I'm thrilled that you're able to come and instruct us and lead us in this time. And uh, just thank God for you. Uh, Todd's going to come and give some housekeeping details. That was the introduction. <laughs> He's going to come and give instructions and lead us in prayer, and then Timothy will come. That Paul's open mouth just threw me, just threw me there. All right, our pastor's rarely short of short of words there, and I, I was so confused. So. Uh, uh, all right, um, I wanted to give you a, a few um, just kind of housekeeping things now, so that we don't have to do it between between the plenary and the breakout sessions. There's one thing you will pick up as you leave. We have uh, developed and, and had this printed up. This is a book, a rite of passage book for our church. And we've, we've printed enough copies for one per family. And so we would ask you as you leave, grab one for your family. It, does, it doesn't matter if you have children in the home or not, uh, if you're married or not. Whatever your family unit is, grab one of these because there's a small section in there uh, for you. And you'll find that hopefully it'll be very informative. Uh, it does not cover everything by any stretch of the imagination. But it does give you a, a good kind of starting point for how you can help uh, in the discipleship and formation of the young people here at Grace. The, uh, the second thing is out in the, out in the lobby there is a couple resource tables. And your breakout seminar uh, leader will talk about various resources for your, uh, your area of interest that you're in uh, tonight. But on those tables, there are a bunch of different resources that they'll refer to and that you're able to order. Some of them you're able to buy tonight with the move and everything of the transition. We were not able to get everything ordered to where you could just come in and pick it up tonight. But if, if you would like, just you know, fill out your name and, and, and the book you would like, how many copies, and we'll get that ordered, and then uh, you can, we'll settle up and everything. Once it's, once it's done, we'll step out on faith that you are men and women of your word. Um, you, you should have received a breakout seminars sheet when you came in. If you want to grab that really quick, you'll notice on here that no matter who you are, no matter what kind of life stage you're in, there's, there's a seminar for you because as we talked about back in September, uh, this is not something just for parents that currently have children in their home, but it's something for our entire church family because God has, God has placed us together here as a local body to care for one another and to live and function as a family of faith. And so we want to give you plenty of opportunities to grow and to know how, what your role is in, in discipling the young people here. So if you notice the, the one there, Dr. Jones is going to do how to lead a family devotion. If you would like more information on that, obviously you stay in the sanctuary. Making Disciples of the Next Generation, this is one of the kind of the core seminars that we want you to take if you already have children outside of your home. If, they, if you do not have children in your home, then we would like for you to take this, and, and it'll cover a, a pretty broad scope of how you can disciple those coming up behind you. The gospel in your children is for the salvation rite of passage, so if you have a child at home that is not a believer and you would like to, to find out more about leading them to Christ and sharing the gospel, teaching that at home, then that's the one you would want to go to. 
the heart parenting, this is for parents who are before or after. If you have a, a young child at home that you have not gone through parent-child dedication. So if you know, if you're expecting, or you're expecting your first child, then that's a perfect one for you to go to. Even if you're planning, you know in the next year or so that you're expecting a child. Uh, or if you have a young child, like we have Kendall, and we have not gone through dedication yet with her. Uh, so uh, that would be a great one for us. So that might be the one you would want to go to there. Preparing for adolescence, if you have a child that really anywhere, fifth, fifth sixth grade is ideal for this. Um, you could come as young as probably fourth grade, but, but we'd really encourage you right around the fifth, sixth grade year. If you have a child that's in, in those grades, we would encourage you to go to preparing for adolescence uh, to help. We're equipping you with seatbelts in that uh, breakout seminar. Um, the final two are for the last rite of passage, uh, preparing your, your child for manhood and womanhood. And if you have a teenager that's currently in the student ministry, this would probably be the best uh, seminar for you to attend. So we will be out there in the foyer when, once Dr. Jones gets finished. We'll be out there. And if you have any questions about the seminars, which one you should go to, then let us know. You're welcome. Uh, adults with children outside the home, obviously you're welcome to go to the manhood or womanhood one uh, or any of the others. But we would probably really encourage you for this first one to go to the Making Disciples seminar. These will be offered on a yearly basis. Uh, and so you'll have another chance when they come around to, to take part of them. But if you have any questions, ask me or one of the staff, and I'm going to pray, and we'll turn it over to Dr. Jones. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful, God, for this opportunity we have to, to, to just grow as a church family. God, to consider how um, we, we partner together in making disciples of the next generation. God, we're thankful for the, uh, the young people you've blessed us with here. And God, we pray that you would... Uh, just be with each one of them. Have your hand on their lives, God. Those who do not know you, God, we pray that you would uh, grant them the gift of faith and, and call them to yourself, Lord. Uh, God, for those who are believers, God, we pray that you would grow them in your word and sanctify them by your truth, God. And Father, now as we, as we hear about just rites of passage and, and what that is and the importance of that in the lives of, of young people, God, we pray that you would guide Dr. Jones, grant him wisdom and discernment as he, as he speaks and teaches. And God, we pray for understanding and how to apply it to our homes, God. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for your goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen. Good to be with you. And uh, greetings from Southern Seminary. And uh, just great to be with you tonight uh, to share in what you're doing uh, here now, we may not realize it, but you came here tonight with a pocket full or maybe a purse full of stories. Uh, pretty much all of you did. There may be a few of you that didn't, but you came here with a pocket full or a purse full of stories. How many of you with you have a set of keys? Anybody? Anybody have keys with you? All right, let's pull those out. You're going to need those. What we're going to do is we're going to redistribute those to everybody. And you may have come in a Buick and you'll leave an Alexis. No, I'm not making sense. Some of you looked more excited about that than others did. That's not what we're going to use this for. But you came with a pocket full of stories. Now, the reason I'm going to emphasize stories and storylines tonight, because really the point of rites of passage ought to be not simply that we get this done for the sake of our kids or get this done because Todd's bugging us about it. That's not why that is a good motivation for doing this. The reason is because we want to help our children and indeed help ourselves to see our lives in light of a bigger story than ourselves. That's really what we're doing in rites of passage. We're saying here's a framework for the story of your life and how it fits into God's greater and bigger story. But back to your keys. Each one of these keys that you've got right here has some sort of a story behind it. You ever thought about that? You got a key to your, your office, maybe. Well, there's a, a story behind how you got that job that you go to. There's a story behind that. It may be that you love your job. It may be that you despise your job. But there is a story somehow behind that. They're your house key. Your key to your house. There's a story behind how you got that house. But you know what else? There's a story behind what you do in that house. There's a story right here. In your car, your car key. 
Your car key tells a story. There's a story about how you ended up with that car, but there's also stories that you are writing and telling and living day by day as you ride with your kids in your car as you go places. Your pocket has a pocket full of stories. Now, that's one of the things that I think makes human beings different from animals, for example, is that we tell stories. We're people who tell stories, who live by stories, who die by stories. Stories can be twisted into horrible things. For example, that we can tell stories behind someone's back. We can do all sorts of things with stories. We can use it in an, in an argument. We can bring up an old storyline. Have you ever been in a, um, a discussion with your spouse and you brought up an old storyline uh, from the past that you, you always or you never or don't you remember when or your mother any of those things like that you're bringing up stories storylines that's what's happening when we do that we are people who live and die by stories and here's one sad thing about this our tendency is to try to make our stories about us we try to make them as big as possible. You know, the, the fish story or the Baptist counting story. You know how we do as Baptists. We, how we count things. We add the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That makes three and then round it up to the nearest hundred. Basically, whenever we're estimating numbers. That's, that's kind of the Baptist way of doing things, isn't it, sometimes? We, we try to make big things bigger than they really are. We try to tell stories. And all of that, when we try to misuse stories, they're hints pointing back to the Garden of Eden. You remember what? The serpent said to Eve, you shall be as gods. You know what we might paraphrase that as? You can write your own story. You can have your own story. You don't have to rely on his story. You can have your own story. And we have this tendency to want to think that the stories of life are all about us. Now here's the truth I want you to get tonight. God created us for his glory for the purpose of joining his story. Can you get that in your minds? I want you to make sure you get that. God created us for his glory for the purpose of joining his story. Can you say that back to me? God created us for his glory for the purpose of joining his story. Now, I, there's, a, there's a real academic term I want to help you understand and learn that has to do with God's story. A big word right here. And that big, complicated academic term we're going to use is big, good story. All right, there it is, right there. Big, good story. That's what I want to call this story. And part of what you do in rites of passage is to see how do we fit into God's story rather than expecting him to fit into our story. You see, when you join as a community in rites of passage with your kids, what you're saying to your children and to one another is, I am part of a storyline that's bigger than me. That's what you're saying. I don't just write the storyline of my life. I don't figure it out on my own, by myself, apart from the faith community or apart from God. I am part of a story that is bigger than me, and it provides a framework, a storyline for the lives of families. Now that brings us to, I want to look briefly at Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's probably a text you're familiar with already. But I want us to dig into just a few things in this text to help us think through this in a better way. We stand together as I read this text, not because the words I speak are to be responded to with such honor, but because when we read the Scriptures, we are reading the words of God Himself spoken to us. And when we read the Scripture, it is as if God Himself speaks to us. It says in verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Let the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. And when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, and we could paraphrase this, tell him this story. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh, all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Let's pray. God, I ask in this time and in the sessions to follow that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that truth would be spoken and would be remembered. In your name we pray. Amen. So now imagine with me. Here stands Israel at the edge of the desert. They're preparing to turn north into the promised land and they share a common story. You see, their parents had been slaves in Egypt and God had defeated Pharaoh. And the parents had seen the sand spawn flies, the water become blood. They'd heard the wailing of mothers after all of these plagues of Egypt and the firstborn sons died. And that generation, though, that generation of parents had not followed God and followed his will, followed his desire for them to bring them into this land. And so that generation has died off as a whole. But this generation has seen the power of God too. They've seen the pillar of fire. They've seen the cloud that leads them. They've seen that their shoes did not wear out as they go across the desert. They've seen rocks burst forth with water. And they shared in a common story. And now Moses stands before them. And he has been forbidden to enter into the promised land. He's more than a century old at this point. And yet his voice still rings clear and true. And this is his last will and testament to them, we might say. And Moses is deeply concerned about something. In fact, he repeats it seven times in the book of Deuteronomy. And that is what he's concerned about is that they would forget. He says seven times in the book of Deuteronomy, lest you forget. Don't forget this. And in this chapter, he clarifies for them how it is that they as a people will not forget God's story. I want us to look at this very carefully in this text. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 1 and working through to see and to understand this. Because, see, he's not meaning forget in the sense of you forget a certain date or forget a certain fact. He's saying forget in the sense of failing to live every part of life in light of the big good story of God. To see God as part of my story instead of seeing myself as part of God's story. He sees that that's their temptation. 
is to try to make God part of their story instead of seeing themselves as part of God's story. Now Moses tells them not only what to pass on, but also how and who to get the big good story of God to generations yet unborn. Now in the opening part, it lets us know here, it says, God commanded me to teach you. Moses is not merely a prophet and a judge. Moses is a teacher as well, and he's preparing to teach them how they are to get this story moving from one generation to the next so that it's not forgotten. And remember that Moses is the one who wrote these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They come from Moses. So that helps us understand something that Moses pulls some phrases from things he's written earlier. And in chapter 6, verse 3, he does that. He says, Hear there, Pharaoh Israel, be careful to do them that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly. Remember where the first time that's mentioned? It's in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, it speaks, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so he picks up this idea from Genesis, reminding them that from Genesis before the fall, God is now, he says, offering you a new beginning in a new land. He's offering a new beginning in a new land. In Eden, Adam's responsibility was to expand the borders of Eden until those who worship God would spread around the globe so that the glory of the Lord filled the earth as the waters filled the sea. But Adam failed in that. Adam failed in that. And as in Eden, God makes it clear, though, that as he sets forth to them, I'm giving you a new start in some sense. He sets forth to them that I remain the king. (laughs) I remain the king. And he does this by giving them specific rules, laws, statutes. He says to them, he says, keeping all these statutes, all these commandments, which I command you. And he goes on and says, if you do this, you will go into a land of milk and honey. Now read that and think, wow, that just sounds like a really sticky land to me. Why is it milk and honey? Why is this? But it's really important why it's milk and honey. The reason that's important, even though it sounds strange to us, is he says, he's saying in essence, you're not going to be scavenging and on the move. There's going to be a place where I let you settle in and a place where there are pastures, a place where the creatures that sting become the creatures that provide the sweetness for your life. I'll let you settle in into a sweet place where there's space for cattle and all of that. That's what I'll let you do. Now, what they are to pass on in verse 4, the message that's to be passed on, is summarized in verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, this is to this very day the world's most repeated confession of faith. This is spoken over and over on a daily basis by Jewish people the world over. It's repeated over and over, this repeated confession of faith. And it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now I want to teach you a Hebrew word here. And that word is achad, all right? Can you say that with me? Achad. If you say it right, there'll be something on the back of the head of the person in front of you, okay? You kind of cough a little bit up there. Achad, all right? It's this great word, achad. And, And so this word means one, means one. He says, the Lord is one. That's really important for them. I found out from a, a Jewish rabbi that when it's spoken in a synagogue, they don't just say echad, they say echadah, which means one will, one witness, one testimony. We might say one storyline. Saying you've got one God and one storyline that you are to live. Now, think about why is that important? Well, these people are people who live in a world in which that what's believed is that there is a different God for every part of life. You've got a God for fertility. You've got a God for for your crops. You've got a God for the sea. You've got all these different gods, all these different ones. And God says, I am the only one. And not only that, all these other gods, each one invokes a storyline. I want you to catch this. You see, we remember, for example, they worship the golden calf. They worship the golden calf. 
We think, oh, they just had an unhealthy fixation on bovines. No, no, it's not that at all. When they worship the golden calf, they are invoking a particular storyline. When they invoke that, there is a storyline that is about the bull of heaven who is slaughtered each year and comes back and brings spring. When they worship that, they were saying, in essence, God who brought us out of Egypt, you did wonderful at defeating Pharaoh, but can you, can you deal with the seasons and with the crops? Can you do that? In other words, they're saying your storyline is not big enough for us, for us. Another time, later on, they're at the rock, and it mentions that in the text that we read, this rock of Massah. And they begin to ask, God, are you enough to give us water? Can you give us water? Can you do this? In other words, they were saying, are you big enough, your storyline, to do this? And when they got into the land, the land of promise, they would be tempted by these gods named Baal and Asherah. And Baal and Asherah, they were tempting because Baal and Asherah, they promised to give healthy children. So they were saying, God, you did fine getting us out of Egypt. But can you, can you help with our kids? Can you really do that with our children? And what God says to them, verses 13 and 14, The Lord your God you shall fear, serve, and by his name you shall swear. In essence, what he is saying there is you shall not chase after any other storyline but the one I set forth and live with you. And Moses was afraid, and rightly so, that they would not do that. And then they didn't. What's fascinating about this text is he doesn't just, and this is where I want to focus, he doesn't just tell them what to pass on. He also tells them how to pass it on. How do we pass this storyline from one generation to the next? And you might think, for example, it would be the priest. The priests were very important. There's more than a dozen chapters earlier on that tells everything about the priests, all the way from what clothes that they are to wear as to whether they are to be, how you to tell whether they're healthy or not, all these things, all these chapters about the priests. But it's not the priests that's told to pass on this storyline primarily. Or the prophets, maybe. In chapters 13 and 18 of Deuteronomy, it gives very clearly how is it that prophets... How do prophets function in the life of Israel? And yet it's not the prophets. The persons primarily responsible to be the faith trainers are not priests, not prophets, but parents. But parents. Not only that, this is all, you can't see this in English, but it's all couched in masculine singular. He's speaking primarily to the fathers right here. Now, this doesn't mean mom doesn't have a role. And it doesn't mean that we somehow forget or brush aside if mom is the only one that's able to pour spiritually into the lives of kids. I'm not saying that at all. But it is very clear here that his intent is that the normative practice for God's people is that fathers have a primary role in this process. And he says to parents, you shall, verse 7, teach them diligently to your children. You shall teach them diligently. Now the term here that's translated teach them diligently, it's used for carving something into a stone. It's used for whetting and sharpening a knife. It is a repeated action with, a, with an effect on its object. An action that's repeated that has an effect on its object. So in other words, he's saying consistent, planned things you as parents need to be doing to engage your children in these ways. But there's more than that. It says also that you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. All of these things, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates. All of these things are saying, also in the ordinary stuff of life, talk to your kids about the mighty works of God. Tell them, tell them about his story. Now, if the story of God ended here, here's what I would do. 
I'd urge you to train your children. I'd urge you to get involved in all of the rites of passage. I would urge you to do your family devotions, all of these things, and I would push you to do that, and I might even make you feel real guilty about it. That's what I'd do right now. If the story of God ended right here, but you would soon fall short just as I fall short. Your child spills something at the table, and you lose it. The night you set aside for your family devotions would get disrupted because your children decided to reenact David and Goliath and one of them used a smooth decorative stone, decked the other one, you ended up in the emergency room after family devotions and you'd say, this is not for us, we can't do this. You'd fail at it. You'd feel guilty. But praise be to God, the big good story doesn't end in Deuteronomy. Isn't that good? This chapter has Jesus written all over it. Remember always that the entire Old Testament leans earnestly, eagerly, expectantly toward Jesus. Every word of it. Every word of it. And the big story, this big good story, got bigger and gooder and became the bigstest and goodest story of all. That's terrible English, but it's great theology. Because he says here in verse 6, this word shall be on your heart. And this points forward to what is later prophesied by Jeremiah. And he says, there'll be a new covenant. God will engrave it on your heart. And you know how that happened? It happened through Jesus. It happened through Jesus that God himself is writing this on our hearts. On our hearts. You see, what God wants is indeed, as Malachi says, godly offspring from us. But part of what that means is that we look to Jesus in all of it. In fact, that's central to what it means. Is that we look to Jesus. And that look to see the fact that Jesus is not simply saying to us, go and do better. Go and try to do better. Go and try to disciple your kids. But rather, God himself through Jesus is forming a new family, multiplying, filling the earth with God's glory as waters fill the sea, as we proclaim the gospel not only to our children, but also to all people, and that we see that the gospel is centered on what we do. And by gospel, I don't just mean what happens in the moment of salvation. Because you see, the gospel, the real gospel, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by which God is establishing his kingdom in the world and makes sinners right with himself through faith, that is good news not only for the lost, but also for the found. Not only for the sick, but also for the whole. Not only for the dead, but also for the living. It's living every moment, recognizing that Jesus gave himself for me and drawing constantly from that goodness, knowing that anything good we do is not because we are able to do it, but because of Jesus' work in us. You see, God himself in Jesus no longer just orchestrated the story. He entered the story. And because of that, the story of God is not just creation and fall and another fall and another fall and another fall. It's not just that God created the world and then man messed up and then we mess up again and mess up again and mess up again. But God has added to the story redemption and new creation or consummation that's what god has added to the story now i want you to do something with me right here because i'm going to frame the rest of this as we move into talking specifically about our rites of passage i want us to do something and get something in our mind so you have to uh, if you're 12 years old or younger raise your hand will you please if you're 12 years old or younger 12 all right now if you're 12 years old i need you to stand up with me okay all right we're going to do something together if you're 12 years old or younger And we're going to learn the big story of God because this comes really important for what we're going to talk about, okay? All right? Now I want you to do this. God made the world good. God? God made the world good. Can you say that? God? All right, can you adults help them out with this, okay? All right. God? God All right, that's creation, okay? Now do this. Get a really dark look on your face. Can you scrunch your face up? See, like that? Sin made the world groan. Can you do that? And then Jesus broke the power of sin. And God will make the world new. All right, can you do that with me? 
All right, can we start over here and do that? All right, let's try to get this. We have creation and fall and redemption and then consummation, the end of God's story. So let's try this, all right? Is everybody ready? Can you that are kids look at me? Okay, then make sure you do this. All right, now, God made the world good. Sin made the world groan. Jesus broke the power of sin, and God will make the world new. That's the story of God. And praise be to God. You guys can sit down. Thank you. Now, praise be to God. It doesn't stop with creation and fall, does it? But Jesus broke the power of sin, and God will make the world new. Now, let's bring this around to what I want us to see tonight. All right? Now, of course, we don't struggle with other gods today. I mean, polytheism is so B.C., isn't it? I mean, we don't just struggle with that today, do we? With all these other gods? But the fact is that we as parents, we live longing for other storylines. The God of success for our kids. The God of schedules that are so packed we really don't have time to do what matters. Even making our children gods, where we really, the goal of our household becomes keeping all the kids happy. Refuse to say no to them. Refuse to confront them with hard truths in their lives. You name it. They're all other storylines and other gods. We need to learn to see our children in light of God's storyline. In light of God's storyline. You see, when I see my child in light of creation and fall, all I'm just thinking is this. You know what? My child is a gift and I need to manage their behaviors. But when I see my child in light of redemption and consummation, then I have to view my children very differently. You know that? You see, if I view my children in light of redemption, recognizing that if I stand beside my daughters in eternity, it won't be as their father, but it's their blood-purchased brother in Christ, then what I have to do is start viewing my kids as potential or actual brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what I have to view them as. Now, when I'm viewing that, let's just use this as an example. Let's suppose you go somewhere tonight after church, and your child reaches over and dumps milk right off the table, right in your lap, okay? Now, if you're thinking in light of creation and fall, what you're going to try to do is figure out how do I make sure they don't do that again, all right? That's, that's going to be your response. Am I right? Don't look at me like you don't feel this way, too. I mean, we all know that we do. How do I do this? How do I make it? If I look at them in light of redemption, then I have to think through, what is it that I can use even in spilt milk to point them toward the gospel? Even in little things, how do I point them toward the gospel? How do I discipline them in ways that point them toward the gospel? And maybe in spilt milk, it's saying, uh, you know what, I'm so sorry you did that. Let's grab a cloth and I need you to help clean that up. So they learn a level of responsibility. And so that we show grace in the midst of that, but still have responsibility so that they see there comes a day in their life at some point at which they realize by God's grace that their life is too messed up for them to fix on their own and they run to Jesus by the work of God in their life. Now, that works a lot better than me exploding all over the place, even though I want to do that. That's what happens. If, if, if you think about your children in light of new creation or consummation, you recognize that all the soccer tournaments, the ballet recitals, the advanced placement courses, how high the numbers went on your child's 1040 form will not matter. And if your life revolved around helping them succeed in those areas, your life was wasted. See, our goal becomes to leverage their children's lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want you to see that when you approach your rites of passage as a church. I go through all that and I belabor that because I want you to see that what we're trying to do is to say and communicate to our kids and to our families that what we're saying is that we're establishing a framework that places the key points in a child's development in the context of the gospel and of God's storyline. Now, why is this so necessary in our culture? Why is it so necessary for us to have rites of passage in our culture? Well, it's partly because our world has no clear idea of what the storyline of life ought to look like. We have each person running off on their own storyline in their lives. 
You can see that with this one simple question. When does adulthood begin? <laughs> we don't even know how to answer that question, do we? Why? Because we don't have a clear idea as a culture as to even what the basics of a storyline of someone's life looks like. And that's the, the upshot. That's the, the, what happens when we have a culture that is left behind God's storyline. <laughs> What we end up with at that point, with a culture leaving behind God's storyline, is there's no big story left. And so each person is kind of on his or her own writing your own story. You don't even know, when am I grown up? When, am I, when does this happen in my life? Now, this isn't the case in many other cultures. In one of my classes, I show this, uh, this video from a, a group in Kazakhstan, a tribe there. And it's just amazing because there's a, when the boy is about ready to become a man of the tribe... He has to climb down a cliff. And as he climbs down a cliff, he has to get a baby eagle. And his father pulls him back up and you think, oh, that's a pretty good rite of passage. No, that's just the beginning of the rite of passage right there. He for several months has to train that eagle to hunt. And then his rite of passage to move into adulthood is at the end of this time to take that eagle up on a mountain and for that eagle to take down a fox an arctic fox, and has to take down that fox, and then the boy cuts open the fox and feeds the lung and the liver to the eagle. Now that's a rite of passage, isn't it, right there? (laughs) But you know what? That boy knows when he becomes a man. He knows it. At the end of that, he's a man at that point. In our culture, it's tough for people to figure out, when am I grown up? I don't know. Is it when I'm in, in early adolescence and my parents start kind of letting me go, pushing me out to, to do certain things and allowing more freedom? Is it, is it in, in 16 when I can drive, 18 when I can smoke, 21 when I can drink? Is it when I get married? Is it when I have financial independence? Is it when I have kids? When do I become grown up? We don't help people understand that. Well, rites of passage help us to aim our kids to see the big picture of God's storyline. You see, in Deuteronomy 6, it speaks there in Deuteronomy of teaching these things to your children and your children's children. You see, the idea is that we build things into our children's lives so that they can build them into the next generation, so that they can build them into the next generation. That's the idea. But if we have this fuzzy idea of even my responsibilities and what I'm supposed to do, that's difficult. It's tough for them. Now, what has happened in our culture, and I don't want to go into a whole sociological analysis, but we have got this idea of adolescence ought to be a time of maximum indulgence and minimum responsibility. And not only that, we have based that as the high point of life. (laughs) That's the high point of life. Now you think about it, you think about it, now I know that you don't want to admit you know some of these songs, but, uh, but let's go, let's think through one. Uh, any of you from the 1980s listened to the radio enough to hear a song uh, called Jack and Diane, okay? You remember that? Okay. Hold on to 16 as what? Changes come real soon, make us women and men, okay? Got this idea of, or, or let's say Brian Adams, summer of 69. Let's think of that. Uh, those were the what? Those were the best days of my... We put this pressure on adolescence. That's supposed to be the best days of your life. And, and it's maximum indulgence, minimum responsibility. And not only have we done that as a culture, here's the other thing. We've turned being a senior citizen into kind of a second adolescence. Now, what basically we've ended up with as a culture is you get into adolescence as quick as you can at this life stage. You stay there as long as you can until your mom kicks you out of the basement where you've been playing video games for the past decade. And so you've got as long as you can. You work whenever you can, and then you retire and go right back to it. That's the idea of the culture. Why? Because we live in a culture that's lost all sense of any rites of passage of how to move people toward adulthood of this responsibility that's spoken of in Deuteronomy 6 of passing things on from generation to generation to generation of men in particular stepping up to the plate and saying, I'm supposed to be a leader in this. We have lost that. We've lost that. And so that's part of what we as a church do is we step in and try to to help people with this through rites of passage. 
And there's something else about rites of passage that's really important. Now, I don't want you to get to all the, some of the things that are right here, but I want you to see this. When somebody goes through a rite of passage, let's see in your own rite of passage uh, of preparing for adolescence, for example. That's a good one right there. A good example of saying, you were a, a child, okay? We're going to move you into adolescence as a community. We're going to celebrate this as a community. But also, and this is really embedded in your, in your literature, it's really good in this. Uh, and, and that is that we're not, that your adolescence is to be a preparation for adulthood. See, that's what our culture's lost. And and your community of faith is involved in this. Our culture has lost the idea that adolescence is a preparation for adulthood. It just sees it as a place to stay and hang out for a long, long time. But what you're saying in this is, we're doing this to prepare you. That's right. That's good. That's helpful. That's reflective of this ethos of Deuteronomy 6, of developing generations so that they are able to step up and pass the good news of God, the story of God, from one generation to the next. And it also says this, that I'm not just going to write my own storyline of my life, and it's all about me finding myself. You're saying in that instead, there are certain goals and thresholds and markers that are in my life, and I'm going to move toward mature Christian adulthood in my life. So what happens when we don't have rites of passage? The sad part is, is that our culture, when we lose that, marriage and children are seen as burdens instead of blessings. Marriage and children are seen as burdens instead of blessings. Marriage and children are instead of blessings. Now, another thing is that we see is that the generations lose connections with one another. You know, there's a lot of churches where nobody knows one another from one generation to the other, where the older people don't really know the younger people and they're not celebrating. Do you know what rites of passage help us do? As they help us to come together as a community and celebrate. Notice again in this text that we read, it says in in the larger context, all of Israel is gathered together and hearing these words in this. They hear this. And they say, your child's going to ask questions of you. And there's people that are older, there's people that are younger, all involved and all present here. That's a good thing. The generations need one another. And last of all, and I kind of hinted at this already, is that when we don't have this, the culture around us writes the storyline instead of God writing it. See, that's what was happening in Deuteronomy. They were getting ready to go into the land, and Moses is saying to them, don't let the culture you're going into write the storyline. You keep God's storyline, and you keep rooted in that. Don't let the culture write the storyline. Don't fall prey to Baal and Asherah and all of them. Don't let the culture write the storyline. And that's what we're saying. We celebrate certain things together. We're saying we're not going to let the culture write the storyline. We're going to let it be God's story line that we are going to live by. So just to pull this together, the encouragement is this, is to live all of life in light of the right story. Now, none of the things that you're celebrating as a community are going to do that on their own. Only the gospel can do that. But you know the practices that you're undertaking as a community point toward the gospel. They point toward the gospel in such a way that God can use all these things you're doing, the rites of passage and all of those things, as means by which he shows you your place in his story line. I had a a woman who, who, after kind of presenting some of these things in, in a conference, she said to me, this seems so hard And I feel so inadequate. And my response to her is very encouraging. I said, that's because it is hard and you are inadequate. Encouragement doesn't show up high on my spiritual gifts inventories. Uh, So it is hard and you are inadequate. And you may be thinking, wow, this is big. I'm supposed to get the God storyline into my kids' lives and join together as a community. This is hard and I'm inadequate. And my message to you is it is hard and you are inadequate. And that's the whole point, is that we're inadequate. And so we run to Jesus. We run to Jesus. 
And we, when we fail, we turn again to him. And we seek the help of our community around us. And we recognize that the spirit that he has placed within us is greater and stronger than the pressures that have been placed around us. That's what we recognize. So I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to get out your pocket full of stories again. Kind of flip through these for just a moment. I'd like you to think of each context that's represented on here. Look at your house key. And think about, am I letting the culture write the storyline in my house? Am I letting the culture write the storyline? Or am I wanting God to write the storyline? My job. Am I letting the culture write the storyline in my job? Am I running to Jesus? My car, all the running around I do with my kids, all the things we do in our schedule, all those things. The conversations I have in the car, all of that. Who's writing the storyline? Who's writing the storyline? Think about it. Put your keys, your stories in your hand. I'd like you to bow your heads for just a moment. You should grip those as hard as you can. And I want you to just pray within your own heart. Lift up to God. The areas where you've been writing the storyline in your life and in your kids' lives. What is it? Where is it that you have been seeking? I want my kid to succeed. I want him this for them above everything else. And I'm willing to sacrifice the good things of God for that. Where are the areas that you say, you know what, I just haven't talked to my kid about this. I haven't talked to my parents about this. Because I I want the storyline, I want to write it myself. I'd like you to really Seek God in this. As you've gripped that tightly, now just open your hand and feel that release. That release. And let that release that you're feeling in your flesh reflect a release that is happening in your heart. Where you are saying, God, I've tried it to do my own storyline my own way. I'm tired of it. And God, let me fit into your storyline. Let me do those things with my kids that I need to do to fit our lives into your storyline. I've been trying to do it in a different way, and I I want to fit into your storyline instead of expecting you to fit into mine. Cry that out to him. Embrace that truth of the gospel as it applies not just to getting you into heaven, but also to shaping your life day by day. God, we thank you for this time. I ask that you would open our minds and hearts to sense, to hear your word to us. Show us those ways and those areas, God, in which we have allowed the culture to write the storyline of our lives and call us to your story anew. In your name we pray. Amen.